0: So this morning, we are um, kind of segueing from that into... What is it exactly that Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to buy into and believe, right? We've looked at this thing for 47 weeks. And so what does it take for us to take a a little bit of an overview and, and see where we've come from and say, what is the recap here? What's the walkaway? What are the lessons that we need to make sure we don't miss? And that's why I like to do these little wrap ups at the end of these books that we study, because it's an important time to look back and kind of survey the land. And and that's kind of where we are. We finished uh, Ephesians, 47 weeks, over a year, 13 months it's taken us to walk through it. We've been through some incredible places. It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge theologically. It's been a challenge practically. We've talked through some incredibly nuanced things from family to slaves and masters to sexuality to uh, spiritual warfare. We've talked through deep theological things like being chosen by God. We've talked through some deep stuff. And so what is it that we stop and we look at and we, we point to and Say, Paul, what is it that you want us to walk away with? Now, the things that I've picked are may not may not be the things that the scholars will pick, but they're things that I believe are really important for our community. And so, two weeks ago, we began the process of looking at lessons that we learned from Ephesus by looking at the first of th- first three of six lessons, and we talked two weeks ago about the first three, the three things that we wanted to walk away with. The first being the priority of our lives should be to know him better. Remember Paul's heartbeat for the church was not that life would be easy for them. Life as a first century believer was hard. It was difficult. It was a beating. In fact, every day was a day you woke up and might lose your life because you believed in Jesus. And Paul doesn't pray that the church would have relief, that they would be set free, that life would be good, that God would give them all their dreams. He actually prays for them that God would give them wisdom. So that they might know him better. His entire heartbeat for the church was they would know God better. And we began to talk about that the idea for our lives is not that we get through this thing unscathed or that we can make it through the difficult times or that God takes away our problems, but in the middle of struggle and strife and difficulty, that we might long to know God better. And so we talked about that being the first lesson. The priority of our lives is not to get through it, not to thrive, not to be financially successful, but to simply know God better. And in the midst of doing that, God reveals all kinds of beautiful and incredible things. But he wants us to know him better. The second lesson we talked about was the reminder that we are saved by grace alone that there is nothing that we can do inherently to earn or deserve our salvation, that everything in you have in Christ is because Christ loved you first and you have been saved by his grace alone. It is not grace plus works or works plus grace. It is purely by the move, the divine move of God. You did nothing to deserve it or earn it and you have been saved by his grace. And We spend a lot of time talking through that and it's an important reminder because we come from a culture that needs to perform for things. We perform for love. Even in our own marriages or our own homes, or to our own parents. We do things to earn the respect and appreciation and love of those we care about. It's natural that we would want to transfer that over to how we see and relate to God. I need to do this for God to love me better, or more, or forgive me, or whatever. And the truth is, it's, that's not true. God does sufficiently all that we will ever need before we can do one thing single thing, right? We've been saved by grace alone. Lesson three was that there is only one. And we talked in depth about what those those things were. There is one God and one church and one way. And we explored those in depth, being that there's not a whole bunch of ways that lead to the same place. Scripture is very implicit and explicit that there is one way to one God. And the church, the one singular church, is the way in which God is going to demonstrate this love of Christ to the entire. World. Um, We have done our best as humans to try and divide that one church into a whole bunch of different segments, but the church is brought together by the common and singular love for Jesus Christ. There is one church for all those who profess faith in Jesus. You are part of a much bigger community, an ecclesia, a gathering, if you will, that spans space and time, that unites us from believers across the world and, and went before us and will come after us. That we are part of the one universal church. That one universal church is saved by the one way where Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not a plurality of ways to find salvation. And that all leads us to the one true God. And we explored that in depth. And those are the first three lessons. And basically what we did was just kind of recap some things that we have talked through. Well, this morning, we're going to recap the last three of those lessons. And again, when you survey the back half of the book of Ephesians, there's probably 50 things we could walk away with. But we're going to look at three. And those three are going to be the last sort of pillars that we build this book on. We're going to put a bow on it today, and we're going to wrap it up and put it back on the shelf, and we're going to start something new next week. So um, it's been a great journey. But let's look at the next three lessons, lessons four, five, and six that we learn from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray. We're going to be in chapters five and six today, so if you've got your Bible or you want to go ahead and flip there, um, you can do that. We'll start in the first few verses of chapter five, and then we're going to jump over to chapter six. So let's take a moment, let's pray together, and then we'll jump into these lessons this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to gather here as a community, a community that um, is called By you out of this world, Lord, to demonstrate what the love of Christ truly looks like. Not because we can replicate it, but because you put it in us, most literally to overflow to the watching world. We are a demonstration of your grace. The church, the broken church made up of broken people, made up of disastrous humans have been saved and redeemed and are a picture of love and grace for the entire world. And it's a privilege to gather together. It's not a habit. It's not just a call. It's a joy that you invite the church to participate in worship together, to care deeply, as Paul would say, about each other, about the spiritual growth of the people around us, to be moved um, by the depth of our love for each other. As you sit here this morning, I invite you just to take a moment and just ask the Lord to teach you. If you've been with us at any point in time over the past months or weeks, these are going to be hopefully things that you remember, that you're reminded of. These are just recaps. But ask the Lord to teach you or to refresh your memory or to just press something on your heart that you need to hear this morning. Ask the Lord to prepare your heart. As we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you or behind you. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people just as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus that God might reveal to them wisdom so that they would know him better. Pray for the spiritual growth of the people around you. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or maybe it's your kiddo or maybe it's just somebody you've never seen before. Or if you're here for the first time, just give it a try. Pray for that person that's just right next to you. Care about the spiritual growth of the people around you. Everything that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for the people around you this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach our hearts to remind us of these incredible things we've learned in this unbelievable letter. And we ask you to instruct and rebuke and correct and empower us in the risen name of Jesus our savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Chapter 5. We're actually going to be in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, and then our second lesson is going to come right on the heels of that in verse 3, because chapter 5 is a doozy. I mean, we spent a lot of time in it. We got kind of bogged down in there. If you remember way back in June, we were doing like a verse at a time because they were so deep and so rich. And so we're kind of stuck in there again this morning. Two of our major lessons from this book are going to come right out of the first three verses of chapter 5. And the fourth lesson that we're hanging on to is the call that comes out of Ephesians 5.1 where Paul says, Be imitators of God. So listen to those verses. We'll look at one and two first. He says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One of the great calls of the book of Ephesians is this, be an imitator of God. But there's a problem with that understanding. And the problem is how we read and understand the idea of imitation. Because for most of us, and rightly so, imitation is the idea of I see someone do something and I replicate whatever that is so that I do it like they do it, right? Imitation means I see it and I want to replicate it. And that is certainly imitation, But that's not really what Paul's saying if you read the whole verse. Because if you think of the depth and complexity of what it would mean to imitate God, how impossible would it be for any human heart, life, mind, soul, or any action to at all imitate the holy, perfection, righteous nature of God, right? Like what a joke. Like Paul says, imitate God. It's like, that's impossible. Not only is it impossible, it's unattainable. It's un- unachievable. So what is it that Paul's saying? Is he saying, give it your best effort, try to be like God, act like God, think like God, love like God? No. Our understanding of imitation is somewhat askew if we just read the first part of Ephesians 5.1, which means God's nice, I should be nice. God loves, I should love. Not really what Paul's saying. And what we talked about weeks ago was we talked about this idea of imitation biblically actually is defined if you read that whole verse. The imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. That idea of dearly loved children or being a dearly loved child actually informs what it means to imitate God. So what Paul's saying is, we are not called to replicate God's behaviors. We are called to understand who we are, what God has lavished upon us, and the overflow or the outflow of that is what it means to replicate or imitate God. So we're not nice because God's nice. We're not loving because God is loving. God has given us what we could not give for ourselves. He has lavished us with grace and love in a way that is absolutely beyond our understanding and ability to even comprehend. And as we learned in lesson two, saved by grace alone, we didn't earn or we didn't deserve. Period. Period. Therefore, God has filled us and poured this into us. And being an imitator of God means that I have this overflow of what God has done in me that is uncontrollably pouring out of my life, and I imitate what he has poured into me. We are poor reflections or imitators of God's behavior. But what we are are beautiful examples of what he has done. That if God can save you and God has redeemed you and God loves you when you are unlovable, if God has forgiven you for all the ways that you've turned your back on him and denied him and chosen the world or chosen yourself over him, yet God loves and forgives and lavishes, we are called out of the overflow that God has poured into us as children to love and live the same way. Months ago, we talked about it in terms of this. There are certain things that we are called to imitate that flow out of who we are, right? We're not going to get into them in too, too deep this morning at all, but those things are important. And we're talking about how we are called to imitate God in the way that he acts on love, the way that he forgives, right? Right? These movements that God does, we are called to act upon only because they are overflows of who we are. Now, you may be thinking, sounds a little nuanced. Aren't you saying the same thing? But the truth is, no. If the goal of the Christian is to just simply walk out in the world and try and act like God, we will fail. You will fail. You can't do it. God is perfect. His, his motives are pure. The way that he speaks is righteous and holy and with authority. He, he gets... Like he has holy anger that is not drenched in sin or selfishness. We can never imitate any of those things. It will be a failed attempt. Our goal is not for people to look at us and see God, right? Which is what you would normally think about with imitation. They would look at something and say, oh, that's just like the original. It's impossible. But what Paul says is, listen, you have been saved and you are dearly loved children. These things, right, this forgiveness, this love, these things that God has lavished upon you, all you are called to do is live them out. You become an imitator of God in the way that you do the things that God has already lavished upon you. Meaning that if God has forgiven you without exception, that he has released you from that guilt, that we are called in the same manner because God has forgiven us to forgive those around us. Not because we forgive, Or have the power, but because it's been given to us. God has forgiven you. Who are you to not forgive the people around you? If God has forgiven you for the thousand ways you have abandoned him, chosen the world, chosen yourself, who are you to not forgive your sister? Or your mother? Or your family? You have no right to hold back what God has freely lavished upon you as a dearly loved child. And God loves us sacrificially and unconditionally. And out of the overflow of that love, we are called to love sacrificially and unconditionally. Not perfectly like God, but we are called to love the way that he loves us. Which means that we love people without condition. We don't make them jump through hoops. We don't make them perform for our love. God never did that to you. He never makes you perform for his love. Why would we make our spouse Why would we make him earn it when God never made you earn a thing? Being an imitator of God means that the overflow of what God has done in you, you live out to the world. And it's powerful. And I think that we I've chosen this as a lesson because most of us think that what we're called to do is to walk out there in that world and just try and act like Jesus. Tell me how that goes, by the way. Tell me how that goes. Charles Swindoll once wrote a book called The Finishing Touch. He was the uh, great pastor and theologian, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a long time. He wrote a book called The Finishing Touch, which is a series of devotionals. And in it, he thought, he goes, you know what? For a long period of my life, I basically thought that evangelism would be, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live the, most, the best life I can, the most morally pure life I can, I'm going to live different than the entire world. I'm not going to proselytize, like beat people over the head with the Bible and all these things. I'm going to live this way, and I want people to see it in me. And when they see it in me and they say, they say, Charles, you're so different. Tell me about that. He goes, at that point in time, I will tell them all about Jesus. And he goes, and for about 15 years, not one person ever walked up to me and said, Charles, you're living so different. What's wrong? He goes, I was unrecognizable because I was so much not like Christ. At some point in time, you have to talk about Jesus. The point is, is that you're not going to walk out into this world and try and imitate Christ and have people go, man, those Christians are amazing. There's a reason the world looks at the church and has a disdain for it and calls believers hypocrites and judgmental. You know why they do that? Because we are. Like, they're not wrong. When the world points a finger and says the church is full of hypocrites and people that are judgmental, they're not lying because we are human and we are those things. So in imitating Christ or imitating God is impossible. But what isn't impossible is living this overflow of what Christ has done in you and telling the world about it. Like I didn't deserve forgiveness. I don't at all. Yet God loved me more than I could ever dream or imagine, and I couldn't earn this, and yet he saved me and redeemed me, and that same promise is for you. And I'm going to forgive you in a very imperfect way, but God will forgive you in the perfect way. I'm going to love you in a way that is an overflow of the way that God loved me, which means I want to be sacrificial about it and unconditional. I don't want to do it with condition, meaning you don't have to earn my love, Right? So being an imitator of God means that we live the overflow of the grace and love as dearly loved children that Christ has lavished upon you. In other words, go and be the new creation you are. That's what he's telling the church. Don't go out there and everybody just try and be Jesus. Live redeemed, lived free. So lesson four, right? Be imitators of God as an overflow of what he has done for you because you are a dearly loved child. Lesson five actually jumps right in the very next verse. I couldn't get away from it. And we talked a lot about, we actually did four weeks on rules for marriage and households, right? We explored relationships with children, relationships with parents. We talked about marriages, husbands and wives. We talked about what submission looks like. Can't really get away from it. It's one of Paul's big practical lessons in that book. But the first part of that I want to draw our attention back to. And that's lesson five, and it's this. Know the truth about sexual immorality and impurity. It's a big part of Paul's story here, right? It's a big part of Paul's story. Know the truth about sexual immorality and impurity. Listen to 5.3. 5.3 says this, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because those are improper for God's holy people. Now we're coming on the heels of the what? Be imitators of God, right? Because, dear loved children, you have been saved and redeemed. Reflect and overflow what God has already poured out in you, and there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity among you, which begs a couple of questions. What is sexual immorality? Well, we explored this in depth in June, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that and to our study of Hebrews. They're kind of in depth in both those areas in which I cite all the Scripture. But for our recap today, remember this. Sexual immorality is the engagement of any sexual act outside of the sanctity of marriage. From a biblical standpoint, if you want to look closely at Scripture, that is the definition of sexual, imp- uh, a sexual impurity or immorality engagement of sexual acts outside of the sanctity of marriage, which begs a second question, what is marriage? We spent a lot of time talking about this, and I gave you all the details, biblically speaking, and all those other messages. You can go back and listen, but the short definition is this. The biblical picture of marriage from Genesis through Revelation echoed through the voice of God, through the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament writers, and Jesus himself. They're all in beautiful concert That God has an intentional design for creation, and within that intentional design of creation, marriage is sacred and honored, and it is between one man and one woman in which the two become one flesh. Now, right, that's a challenge because we live in a culture that wants to redefine things. They want to tell us that that's not the picture. And from this point forward, any time in your life and in your children's life when you say that marriage is not that right—that is—that is, is anything—if you say that marriage, excuse me, marriage is that between one man and one woman, in which they become one flesh—if you use that definition, not only will culture look at you with squinty eyes, they will call you a bigot and tell you that you're hateful. And the truth is, you're not. You're biblical. And it's not that we're condemning people. Remember, we're called to love and act and engage as imitators of God the same way that God has loved and acted and engaged with us. But we're biblical. And we recognize that God has established a design for marriage and for family and for creation that is ordered and that is beautiful and that is ordained. And he calls the church to honor it. And the role of the believer Right is to honor and live the word of God. Not to rewrite it, not to redefine it, not to make it so it fits our narrative, which is what we want to do. We want to take that thing, and we want to turn it around and go back to some weird definition in which we get it to fit our context so that we can live a life that pleases us. That's how we want to manipulate God's word. It's why you can find article upon article of obscure definitions of a third person in a third word that gives this nuance that may mean that. Because I need to make something fit the narrative I want. But when you take the whole of Scripture, from the breath of Genesis to the last breath of Revelation, from, every, from God himself, Yahweh, right? To the words of Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, and the New Testament writers, there is a beautiful, a beautiful orchestra, a harmony of God's created order. And Paul echoes it here. He said, there must not even be a hint, right, a hint of sexual immorality among you, church, means engagement in sexual activity outside the confines of marriage, which is between one man and one woman in which the two become one flesh. Now hear me say this. There's two important caveats here, and we talked about these at length back in the day, but I want to reiterate them again, because here's what I want you to hear. uh, uh, Kind of living into these things is not how we get saved. So you don't have to be perfect to be saved, right? And it's also not a way that we earn or merit God's favor or love. Those things are freely given to us. So if you are struggling in these areas, purity, sexual morality, those kind of things, it does not put us outside of God's grace, right? And it's not a way that if we just adhere to these things, God loves us more. God's not here for a performance. We need to remember that. Paul is writing to a saved group of people, right? Jews and Greeks that are all believed. They are all believers. They're gathered in the context of the community. Paul is addressing them. They are walking with the Lord. He wants them to have whole and right relationships with God. The second caveat is this, because Paul is addressing it, it means that these are things that the church is struggling with. Believers, they're struggling with it. You don't call your son and daughter into the the living room and have a little talk with them over something that they're not struggling with. And that's what Paul's doing. He calls his his church and basically says, I know this is something that you wrestle with. And so hear me. Which is encouraging, because if you struggle in these categories, and we'll get into the details of them in a minute, there is hope, right? There is hope. God knows that this is a wrestle point for humanity, and so he addresses it in his word. Remember, Ephesus was a highly sexualized culture. If you remember back from our very first study, they worshipped the goddess Diana or Artemis, and part of that worship was ritualized sexual activity in the temple. It was very much a part of Greek culture and Roman culture. Culture was very hypersexualized, And Paul knew that the Ephesians were raised and living in it. These are new believers, first-generation believers. They didn't have great-grandmothers who taught them the way of the Lord and walked them through the family Bible. Those things didn't exist. They were believers, listening to the very words of the apostles, trying to walk out their faith together. And Paul says, as a believer, we're called out of the world out of this hypersexualized society and there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality around you or in you. So church, listen. Any engagement of sexual activity outside the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman in which they become one flesh, God calls you out of. Now culture, of course, is going to push headlong against those definitions and, and that's okay. That's what culture does. For the believer, we are called to stand firm upon the word of God. And it's going to be costly. I will tell you that. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. The second part of that says, or of impurity. Then he goes on to talk about greed, which we're not going to hit on this morning. But you can go back and listen. He says, or a hint of impurity. Again, he's still talking about things that are operating in a sexual realm. And as I mentioned, Ephesus was a hyper-sexualized society and purity was most literally all around them. In fact, if you were Greek or Roman, you were raised with this idea of worship and sex being tied together pleasing yourself or whatever brought you joy was part of what you were called to be and do as a Greek or a Roman, if it's pleasing to you, then do it. Engage in whatever perverse or sexual behaviors there are as long as you find it worthy of pursuit. That's what culture would say. But the crazy thing is, is that if you brought every Greek and you fast-forwarded them from that century into this one, they would blush at our, how hypersexualized our society is. At that device that you hold in your hand, the things that we have on TV or TikTok or Instagram, right? At the fingertips of our seven and eight year olds, the things that our teenagers will see on a daily basis that you had to work for growing up. That's the impurity that Paul's talking about. The impurity that draws us outside, the beauty that sex is created to be used within the perfection of God's created order of marriage. Impurity takes that piece of sexualized activity and it pulls it out of the confines of marriage. And the Greeks and Romans lived in it. And you know what? We do too. And it's become norm. And it's become norm increasingly more and more and more. I mean, just if you think about it, if you're old like me on any level, what you watched on TV in the 80s, 90s, what you see on TikTok today is graphically more intrusive, right? And what is it? It's a shrug of the shoulders. How can this be, right? Well, Paul tells us. It's because we become awash with culture. We drop our standards and our definitions, and we begin to say things like, well, I mean, it's just who we are, or it's just normal, or it's not that big a deal. And Paul says it's a big deal. In fact, he says it's such a big deal that there must not even be a hint among you. A hint, a whisper, a breath of sexual immorality or impurity. So basically what he's saying is he's saying you have to fight impurity. And you have to fight it in two ways. You have to fight it inside your marriage and outside your marriage. And when I say inside your marriage, I'm talking about for those of us that are married. You fight for purity inside your marriage. Meaning that you you work to fight for a marriage that is whole and fulfilling sexually with your spouse and not drawing upon things from the outside world. Which includes infidelity, adultery, and pornography. You fight those things. You don't let them in. You get active, you get vocal, you communicate, you decide that your life and the created order that God has for you is worth fighting for. And you root it out. And if it's a part of your story, you don't get discouraged because God has given us hope and freedom in Christ. He knows the church is going to struggle with these things, which is why Paul's addressing them. And so he says, fight against it. Get rid of those things. Talk about them. Invest in each other. It is never too late for a married couple to be redeemed by the goodness of God, ever. It is never too late for him to redeem ideas. It is never too late for him to make whole. It is never too late for God to heal the broken, right? So you fight for it within your marriage. You also fight for it outside of your marriage. What I mean by that is for those of you that aren't married, yet to be married, or may never be married, purity is still a call for you. You are still called to identify and keep with those same definitions, which means that if you are in marriage, you fight to keep sexual activity outside of that realm of your life. As crazy as that sounds, it's biblical. God's created order desires for you to have that in the right places, because outside of the right places, it's destructive. It's destructive to your heart, to our bodies, it's destructive to your future partner. We all can attest to it, every single one of us, if we're honest. So if you're not married, you're fighting for a marriage you don't even have yet. If you're not going to be married, then you're fighting to stay whole and pure and honor God's word. It's the reason that Paul sets these things up before he dives into the depth that he talks about in terms of marriage and submission and husband and wives because this is the foundation. And remember who's Paul's talking to. He's talking to a group of believers that have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and are fully redeemed and saved. He's not lecturing the world. He's looking at the church saying, there's something wholly different for you. Remember, right, the truth about sexual immorality and about impurity. And don't listen to the lies of the world. Root it out. Fight outside your marriage. Fight inside your marriage. Lesson four, right? So we have these lessons, right? Lesson four and lesson five are coming right out of chapter five. Be imitators of God and know and remember the truth about sexual immorality and sexual impurity. There's a lot we could do with lesson six. We could jump all the way and continue down this train of talking about marriage and family and all those kind of things, but I want to jump to chapter six because I want to remember what Paul did with the entire chapter six, and that is remembering that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Chapter 6, if you remember, is that picture of the full armor of God. And we spent weeks on it. In fact, we broke the armor of God down into five weeks and we explored it. This morning I want to look at it just from one quick standpoint, all right, in verses 10 through 12. And we're going to talk about the idea, remember the idea, that all of our struggle in life is actually not against what we think it is. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Let's take a look at what Paul says in chapter 6, all right, if you jump over to 6, 10, uh, we'll start off in 10 and just go down through 12. And again, if you want to hear our explanation of the full armor of God and the breastplate of righteousness and our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation, all that is available online. You just go back and take a listen. But this is, this is the, the overview of the gist of it. He says in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the rulers and the authorities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul says, listen, the things that we're going to fight against, they're not conventional. And if there's anything maybe the, the kind of new Western church has missed on, it's that. You remember way back when I told you, when we studied this, that there was this old Puritan writer named Thomas Brooks, and he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, right? Which is like a total Puritan title for a book. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in that book, he says essentially that there are four things that we should be paying attention to as believers. Christ, Scripture, our own heart, and the devil's schemes. And I told you that I think that we do a great job with the first three, right? We want to pay attention. We have a high Christology. We want to pay attention to the the role that Christ plays as our Savior and Redeemer. We pay a lot of attention to the Word of God, right, and His role in our life. And we want to honor it. We have a really high authority. We pay a lot of attention to our own heart and how Christ and the Word are played out. But we don't pay a ton of attention to understanding or realizing the schemes of the devil. It's true. There's a lot of reasons for that, mainly because it's not a crowd pleaser. Right? It's not one that people love to hear about. They don't like to say things like sin and death and devil and Satan, all those kind of things. Like that's it's not great crowd pleasers. We tend to want to focus on those other things, but they're vital. Scripture's actually full of warnings that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. And as Colby mentioned up here, he wants to destroy your marriages. Why? Because they're pictures of Christ's love for the world. In fact, He equates them to the body of Christ and Christ's incredible redemptive love. So what would Satan want? Of course he'd want to destroy it. Well, in this chapter, the whole chapter, Paul basically says this. Pay attention. You are at war. You're at war. And if there's anything that the Western church is good at, it's denying that. See, what we really want to do is remedy everything ourselves. Right? We have an answer for every problem. We have a pill for every problem. We have a self-help guide for every issue. Got problem A? Here are five steps to ridding that of your life. Dealing with problem B? Six ways to lose weight for Jesus. Like Whatever it is, we have a solution that relies upon you. All you have to do is do this. 30 days to understanding the Bible. Whatever it is, we have a thousand of them, and we have a massive self-help book section in any Christian bookstore that you still walk into if there's one still around. I mean, the answers that we see are human. We can do it. And you know what Paul says? You can't, actually, at all. So he says this in chapter 6. He says, be strong in the Lord. In other words, what Paul knows is that this war that we are facing, this raging war against the enemy that is very real and very active, cannot be won by you. You will not overcome the enemy on your own. You will never defeat his schemes, his ideas, his lies, his deceitfulness. You cannot overcome it. He is too powerful, too strong, too deceptive, and you are just too human. It is impossible. So if you think you're going to overcome that struggle or that battle on your own, on your own devices, by following a few steps and doing a few things, you are mistaken. And Paul says, so you have to be strong in the Lord. He doesn't say just go be strong, make your feet strong and work out and do all those things you need to do to stay mentally healthy. He says be strong in the Lord, meaning have an active relationship with a God of the universe who has already defeated darkness and overthrown the enemy. God is has already won. Be strong in him. Quit leaning on your own ability to try and wiggle out of whatever situation you're in or whatever you're dealing with. Call upon the power and redemption and safety of the Lord. The Psalms are full of God being called stronghold, fortress, rock. Why? Because he is all of those things. You cannot do it. You cannot defeat those things. You cannot defeat the thoughts, the destructive nature, the lies. You cannot defeat pornography. You cannot defeat these things on your own. Why? Because the battle isn't here. It's being waged spiritually against your soul, and the enemy knows you. Knows you. That's why Paul says and why Thomas Brooks says that we need to know the enemy's devices. And Paul says the exact same thing. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So what are the devil's schemes and what is his nature? Right? Two things. The Bible tells you exactly what they are. The first is the nature of the enemy is to lie and deceive. That's his whole goal. Everything he is about is distortion of truth. He is a liar and a deceiver from the very beginning. You remember the story we talked about as the serpent comes to Eve in Genesis? And the devil says, surely God didn't tell you you would die if you eat of the fruit. And Eve says, no, no, he did. And the serpent says, no, no, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's a deceiving liar. And he knows you. And he knows the tendencies of your heart. He knows your proclivities. He knows the way that you lean. Thomas Brooks in that same book says, Satan loves to sail with the wind. You know what that means? He knows which way you're already drifting. He knows the lies you've already told yourself, the way you beat yourself up, the discouragement that you have, the anger that you carry. He knows all those proclivities. So Satan doesn't push against those. He actually just breathes wind into the sail. He says, yeah, you are that. You were a mistake. God doesn't really love you, or he's not even real. Well, that's not really what the Bible says. Surely it doesn't say marriage is between a man and a a woman. Surely gender is a construct. And there's no consequences to any of these things. You're just intolerant. Love all. These are the ways that Satan breathes lies into the sails of our hearts. He's a deceiver, right? We don't recognize it right right away. Most of us don't because it goes along with the things that we long for. We long to be happy, to pursue what brings us joy, to not fight against the difficulties, not stand on the word of God, to not have culture and the things around us tell us that we're intolerant. We want everyone to like us. We're human. So what is Satan's device's? He's a deceiver and a liar. He'll tell you in your marriage, you deserve more. You deserve more. You deserve someone that will treat you better or different. Calling you to ignore the biblical call to lay down your life first, but instead stand and demand that you deserve something, mainly happiness. God never tells us that we deserve happiness, He says that He will lavish us with joy. Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. That's the second nature of who he is. He's a liar and deceiver. The second nature is he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 says it. The thief comes to steal, he comes to kill, and he comes to destroy. The second part of the nature of the enemy is that he wants to steal any joy and hope in your life. He wants to kill any opportunity for you to be an impact to the world around you for the gospel, and he wants to destroy your hope. And how does he do it? Different to every single person. That's why Paul says you have to understand his devices. You have to understand the fact that he wants to wage war against your soul and against your marriage and against your family. And this war that we are fighting is taking place all around you. It's taking place in our homes. It's taking place through our phones. It's taking place in the classrooms of our schools. the things that our kids are being taught are so contrary, not all of them, of course, but so many of them are so contrary to the biblical nature of what God has calls us to as believers that it's petrifying. This is the reality of what it means to be a believer in the world. We are fighting against an enemy that wants to wipe you out. How does he do it? He's not going to kill you. He's not going to be able to steal your salvation. Can't do that. He cannot snatch you out of the Father's hand. So what can he do? He can render you ineffective. Or or he can make it so you don't even think there's a war going on around you. And then you don't fight and you don't care and you just go with the flow. That's the way the enemy works. And finally, he wraps that whole thing up by saying, remember, that struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. Don't fight the wrong things. Don't take your anger out on your spouse or on your workplace or all those things. The enemy is waging a war in your heart. He wants to misdirect the enemy. He wants your anger and your frustration and your disgust to be on whatever, on this political party, on that political party, on the public school. He wants us to be in disgust over that. He doesn't want us to go to war with prayer, which is what we talked about in depth in the end of Hebrews. He doesn't want us to use God's word as a weapon, fighting back darkness. He wants us to misdirect our anger at each other or not be angry at all. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If you think you're going to rectify your marriage by going out to dinner an extra night a week, you're not. You're going to have to fight it spiritually. You're going to have to decide that you're going to pray with your wife. Decide that you're going to, as a couple, make spiritual movement a priority, that you're going to invest in each other deeply. You have to fight forward on something much deeper than a worldly ground. Because our struggle is not here. It's not against flesh and blood. So all that to say, right, these lessons, right, The things that, that we have walked away with and we've learned, and there's probably 500 more in there, but the, the six that I essentially chose, right, are, are there as a way of saying, let's not forget. Let's not forget. These are high-value, important things that we are called to walk with. That the priority of our life is to know him better, that we've been saved by grace alone, most literally by the very, grace of God. There is one God and one church in one way. We're called to be imitators of God and to remember the truth about sexual immorality and impurity and to remember that this struggle is not against flesh and blood. As I opened this whole series, I, read, I, I wrote a paragraph and I read it and I'm going to read it to close the whole thing out. It's our understanding of what, Philippians, I mean, what Ephesians essentially is. And this is what I said. At its heart, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is an overwhelming and unfathomable flood of grace. Its central message, Christ has reconciled all of creation to himself. Through his reconciliation, he has united nations, one another, as the church. Jesus called and has reconciled and redeemed the believer to a life of love and unity and reborn identity. Grace changes everything. Christ is all. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible book upon which the lessons will never cease. They never stop. They never end. They're just true and full. We thank you for the glimpse that we get into the life of the early believers and the call that we have as followers of Christ to echo those truths. 2,000 years and things have actually not changed much. The struggles and lies from the enemy are actually still the same. Human hearts are still tendency to the same way. Self-reliant, self-pleasing, self-edifying. Me, me, me. Christian life, however, is all about death to self. I can't do it. I need Jesus. I want to live for you. Lord, the call of the believer becomes just that. That Jesus, we choose you. We honor you. Christ is all. As we close our time in worship, I encourage you to just let the truth of God's word settle into your heart. And may you, for the rest of your life, draw upon what we've walked in and learned to the book of Ephesus, and may it change who you are and who we are forever. Let's stand and close our time in worship.
1: With him to endless life
0: Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. So hopefully this year has meant something to you if you've been with us for a a while. If not, I encourage you to go back and just read the book on your own. It's unbelievable. Um, Make these things a part of your story and a part of your life. Return to it time and time again. Remember the lessons that we've walked through and learned. Fall in love with the Word of God every single day. Go in peace. Colby's going to be out